following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, that's page number 850. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you, I need to make a public confession. George, I'm sorry about your, uh, where are you, George? Brooks? He's in children, never mind. I don't have to make a confession. Uh... What happened to him with that stand was actually my fault. I came in this morning, and I was moving some stuff around, and I went to pick up a stand, and top came right off of it. And I was like, I don't want that for my stand. <laughs> so, so I switched it on him. Or I didn't know it was him at the time. I just switched it. I was like, well, i got to move mine. That one stays still. I didn't think. I didn't realize that he would need to pull it up to see better. So I put it what I thought was a comfortable height, and then that happened. So it's not George's fault. Uh, it's good to see you all this morning, good to be back. It was nice to have a week off uh, last week for vacation. Uh, Jared, if you weren't here, Jared Riggs preached in my beha- on my behalf in my place, and uh, he did a great job. Many of you did not know that was his very first time ever preaching on a Sunday morning. He did a great job. I was very, very blessed by that, so thank you, Jared. Today is going to be a uh, part one of a two-part message from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. If you are a regular at Cornerstone, you know how these work. We will start working through the text. Uh, it was either going to be a one really, really, really long sermon or two medium ones. I thought you would prefer two medium, so I'm giving it in two parts so that we're going to go a certain distance into the text today, not actually very far at all, and then we will stop kind of abruptly, actually, and then we will pick up next Sunday. So if you came today, you are committed to next week as well. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 here in Mark 14, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please look at verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, as always, we thank you for the opportunity to come into your word this morning, to study it, to learn it. Jesus, we thank you for giving us your word so that we can know you. You, the living word, have given us the written word so that we can know you better. And so as we begin now this study into the final really the final hours of your life, I pray that you will help us. Help us to have clear minds, clear hearts, spirit, work in us, remove 
maybe presuppositions that aren't correct about the story that we think we know so well. Help us to see it with fresh eyes, to, to walk down these dusty roads, to sit in these rooms, to hear these words as if for the first time. And through this, to remind us of what is the most important thing that you did for us in coming to earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's the old saying that's well familiar, the things aren't always what they appear. For example, back in the summer of 1999, as I have told you on numerous occasions, I had an opportunity to intern cross town at Colonial Baptist Church. That's the church that started Cornerstone. And it was really a, a great summer in so many respects. In fact, it was one of those um, summers that ended up affecting the rest of my life because I had, I, had I never done that internship, I probably would not be standing up here this morning. It's weird sometimes when you think about like, what if this had never happened? Would that have happened? And so on and so forth. But, but here I am and there I was and it was a great summer. And uh, the church was wonderful to me, gave me a lot of opportunities to learn, showed a lot of kindness. And one of the kindnesses they showed to me was allowing me to spend the summer living with a retired couple in the church named Pat and Patty Birch. Now, there's a few of you in this room who know the Birches, and for the rest of you who don't, you wish you will, because they're, they're, they're a great, great family. And I had a lot of fun with them, and they really made me feel like one of their own that summer. You know, it's one of those, sometimes you go into people's houses and you feel like a guest, you know what I'm talking about? And then sometimes you go into people's houses and you feel like you, you belong there. That's the kind of people there. You just felt like you belong there. And they would introduce me to all kinds of people. And one of the people that they introduced me to was a man named Tom Salzman. Now, I bring his name up and name him only because he was just here a few weeks ago. They were passing through the area, and he stopped. He and his wife stopped, and we got to see them, and it was great. Tom was a great guy. I, I didn't know much about him at the time. I knew he was married. I knew he had a couple of kids, but that was really all I knew. So one random morning, I don't remember when or at any point like in the summer when it happened, one random morning, I'm in the kitchen, getting my lunch ready for the day. I'm getting ready to leave and go over to the church building. And Mrs. Birch is in there. She's making breakfast or something. I don't remember what she was doing. And I asked her, so what are you doing today? And she's like, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to go have lunch with Tommy Salzman. Now, call me prudish. Call me old-fashioned. I am and was then, still now, of the opinion that, you know, if you're a married man or married woman, you don't get together with someone of the opposite sex, right? It's just, it's just not appropriate. And so here she is telling me, without any shame whatsoever, that she's going to go have lunch with Tommy Salzman that day. And I was a little taken aback also because she was so chummy with him. I call him Tommy. I mean, you don't, you don't call him Tommy. His name's Tom, right? It's what you're, what you're supposed to do. So, but I, I, I didn't know her well enough at the time, and I didn't really feel it was my place to say anything. And so I just stood there quietly and listened and left and thought, wow. And I remember these words specifically going through my mind, wow, Mr. Birch must be a really understanding husband. That's, that's what I thought at the time. Fast forward a week or two, and I hear that the Salzmans were coming over for dinner that night. And so they come over to the house. Kids come in. I had met the kids by this point. Tom comes in. Hey, Tom, how you doing? Here comes Tom's wife, never met her before, and so I introduce myself. I say, hi, I'm Stacy. She goes, oh, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Tommy. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, everything made sense, right? And I just broke out laughing as soon as she said that because it was funny to me, and they're all looking at me like, why are you laughing at this? And I told them the story, and they all had a good laugh as well. Uh, I think Mrs. Birch may have been a little offended that I thought she was running around on her husband, but clearly, 
Hey, what would you have thought? I, it was odd enough. Like, you don't find many couples whose names are the same, right, boy and girl? Like, we got Chris and Kristen. That's our one in-house example. But Pat and Patty, what were the odds that they would be friends with a Tom and Tommy? <laughs> I actually hoped to marry a girl named Stacy just to confuse everybody, but never mind. Um, things were what they appeared to be in a good way. Uh, on a similar note, I have one more quick story, and I have to, uh, I'm just doing this one because I want to. Uh, I have to preface this story with, and it's sad that I have to do this. This is 100% true. I am not making anything up as I tell you this story. I'm not embellishing in any way, all right? True story. We were gone week of Thanksgiving. Some of you knew that, which is why Jared preached for me that Sunday after. We went out to Massanutten. Had a, Jamie's parents rented a cabin, and, and we all went out there. So her mom and dad, and we're all there, and Jamie's sister, her husband, their kids, we're all out there together. It's a great week. Had a lot of fun. I think it was the day after Thanksgiving. I think it was Friday morning. If it wasn't, it was Saturday morning. I can't remember now. I, I go downstairs. The, the house is on a, a hill, so I'm going downstairs to where Jamie and I's room was, and I open the door, and I walk in on my wife. This is true. I walk in on my wife sharing a cup of coffee with some young buck she just met just a few minutes ago. 100% true. It's a young buck. It's got antlers. Antlers are about like this tall at this point. Uh, so, so, yeah, I walk in there and I see this. I pull out the camera. I start videotaping, taking pictures of this. And she had been feeding the buck apples right out of her hand. This massive nut and it's a resort. These deer are not afraid of anything. They're not getting shot there, so they're not afraid of anything. And then some people feed them. They shouldn't, of which my wife is now guilty. So, so she's feeding this deer this apple, but he's only like half interested in it. He really wanted her coffee cup. And so she eventually drops the apple, and he just completely ignores it and keeps like nudging in closer. So she finally puts out the cup for him to drink, and he took one drink of it, like stuck his tongue in there, like that. It was Dunkin' Donuts, so in his defense. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Now, the funny part, I'll tell you a couple funny parts here. Uh, so my, I, my videos were taken from outside of a, a patio door or inside of a patio door, so I'm looking through, so there's no audio on mine. There was another family member who was awake at this point, whose name I will not give, or relationship in any way, who was upstairs on a balcony looking down on this incident, and they were also videotaping. And so they're talking to Jamie through the video, which they didn't even realize really they were doing as it's happening. It wasn't until afterwards when we watched the video together that we all started cracking up at some of the comments being made. But Jamie was a little skittish about going down there. I mean, it's a it's a, it's a deer. It's a buck. It's got antlers. It could gore you if it wanted to. It could, you know, I don't know. What a deer, how dangerous are deer? I'm not quite sure. But so she's a little skittish about going down, and this other family member is trying to like, oh, don't be scared. Just go, go on. Go, what are you waiting for? Go. Listen, what are you afraid of? You have coffee. <laughs> so of all of you in the military or in law enforcement, all you need is coffee to protect yourself. So I took the picture just so I'd have proof in case this relationship continues. Uh, if we got divorced, she'd take me for all my dough. <laughs> hey, that was a good point. Yeah. I better stop before I get into a rut. Hey, I, 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 you, you paid me to look up those puns this week. Thank you. Thank you. Again, again, things were not what they appeared, right? Uh, in a good way. Well, 
It has been this saying that things aren't always what they appear that has been in my mind as I I have started to uh, think through this home stretch of Mark here. In a way, it feels like we've been waiting for this moment to arrive for a long time. I mean, I look back this week at the sermons I have preached up to this point, and by my count, I have preached, I have preached, not including what Chris has done or others have done, I have personally preached 75 messages from the Gospel of Mark prior to today. Uh, before we started this study, you know, I, I wasn't really sure we would go this far. I kind of thought that maybe we would go about halfway into the gospel and then stop and then switch gears and maybe go study something else for a little bit, mainly because I was afraid you guys would get tired of it after a while, and I didn't want that to happen. I thought I might get tired of it too, but, but you know, we didn't stop. We just kept going, and I'm really, really glad that we did. But all along the way, as we've been studying, there has been this sense in the back of my mind that we're waiting for something. You know, we've, we're 13 chapters into this now, and it's, there's this feeling that everything we've been looking at so far has just been prelude, that it's just, just setting the stage to take us somewhere uh, after all this time, you know, somewhere else, and after all this time now, here we are at the end. You see, it goes without question, in my opinion, that the central focus of each of the four Gospels is, without a doubt, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in Mark specifically, you get the idea that everything we've been looking, up, looking at up to this point has been bringing us to this particular moment. And just to defend and expand on that statement, if I could, just by way of introduction this morning, since I've got two weeks to, to talk through this stuff, let me draw your attention to the way that each of the four Gospels are written and, and just make sure that you're thinking about it. You know, for example, we're firmly established now in the Christmas season. So it's December and everyone's getting in the Christmas spirit and we'll do all of our annual uh, lamenting, and appropriately so, of the fact that for the vast majority of people around us, Christmas has nothing at all to do with Jesus, right? It's just a cultural and traditional, traditional uh, holiday at this point. But, but let's just think about, though, for a moment, what Christmas does have to do with Jesus, and specifically what it has to do with the birth of Jesus as we look at it or find out information about that here in the Gospels. And so we'll take Mark as our first case study. Turn back to Mark 1 if you need to, if you can't remember. How much does Mark teach us or tell us about the birth of Jesus? Nothing. So all of you turning didn't know anything about Mark. Thanks for proving that publicly. Uh, Mark doesn't tell us anything about the birth of Jesus. Anything at all. It's like he doesn't even care. What about John? How much did John tell us about the birth of Jesus? Nothing at all. It's only in Matthew and in Luke that we learn anything at all about the birth of Jesus. And even when you take all of the information that's there and you put it together, kind of streamline it, you begin to realize very quickly it's not actually that much information at all. You know that there's a girl and she's going to have a baby even though she's not married. There's a guy and he's engaged to her and he's a little worried and, and there's angels appearing and they're going to have to go here to this town and it happens. Or, you, you get some basic outline of the story, but there, there really isn't that much information there. So it just, I don't know, stands out. Let, let's take another example. How much do we know about Jesus' childhood from the Gospels? Does Mark tell us anything about the childhood of Jesus? Matthew? John? Only Luke. And Luke only gives us one really quick 
quick scene from when Jesus was 12 and his family had gone to Jerusalem, probably at Passover time, and, and had stayed behind in the temple. He's talking with the priests and scribes, but it's, it's a paragraph. That's it. That's all you get about his childhood years. What about his teen years? Any information? College years? Uh, young adult life? I mean, you just think through the questions I'm asking you. I mean, apart from just a little bit of information about his birth and this one scene from when he's 12, you have no information whatsoever about the first 30 years or so of Jesus' life. Nothing. The gospel writers are pretty uniform in being disinterested, generally speaking, with this huge span of time in the life of Jesus. And apart from those exceptions that I noted already, the gospel writers all begin telling their story right at or just around the baptism of Jesus, an act that marks his official public entrance into ministry. But but even with that being the case, even recognizing that they're all focused on about a three-year period of time or so, as you look at the arrangement and the choice of content of material that is given to that three-year window, again, it begins to stand out as a little bit odd. You know, Mark is actually pretty representative here in terms of how you think about all of the Gospels. You know, Mark is, by our arrangement, 16 chapters long. And I would remind you again that as Mark was writing, he did not have chapters and verses. That's, he's just writing out a story. We added chapters and verses later to help us move around more quickly in it. But Mark is, by our arrangement, 16 chapters long. The story begins in chapter 1, right around the time of his baptism. And from chapter 1 to chapter 10, you have Mark including scenes and stories, selected scenes and stories, from three years of Jesus' public ministry. Three years in 10 chapters. And then you get to chapter 11, through chapter 15, 16, and the entire rest of the book is given to just one week. Just one. So you, you know, think about percentages here. Do the math. That means the percentage of Mark's gospel given to anything in Jesus' life prior to about the age of 30, zero. It's given to a three-year window from about 30 to 33, about 66%. And then one final week of his life, 34%. Sometimes people say 33 when they're trying to break into thirds, but you always have that missing 1%, and that bothers me. So I gave it to you right there, 34%. Understanding that does, I think, at least two things for us. As you just think about the arrangement of material, first, it reminds us that Mark is not attempting to write a biography of Jesus' life. He's not. None of the gospel writers are. If it was biography, then Mark's story would be more evenly focused and distributed over the entirety of Jesus' life. But of course it isn't. It's very heavily focused on the end. So it's not, it's not biography. Second, it shows us what Mark considers to be the most important or significant thing in Jesus' life. And unlike any other biography you've probably ever read, if this was a biography, the most significant thing in his life is his death. You know, normally if you're reading a biography, it tells you about all the things they did. Like when was the last biography you read about Abraham Lincoln that talked about just his death, just like the moment of his death? Books have been written on the assassination, but, but this isn't what makes Lincoln important. It's all the stuff he did prior to the assassination that made him important. Now, Jesus is a little different for for Mark and for the other gospel writers. They're emphasizing his death, his 
his burial and his, his resurrection. And we should, we should get the significance of that, right? Because when we tell a story, we always, I think, emphasize just the points that are important. Like I, I didn't show you the picture of Jamie giving the, the coffee cup to the, to the buck and say, well, you know, let me tell you the story. She got up before me that morning, and she got ready, and then she went upstairs, and I laid in bed for a little bit longer, and then I got in, in the shower, and it was a really nice shower. I got to use some Dial Bar Soap, which she doesn't normally let me use because she says it leaves a mildew or a film in the shower, and she says I can only use it if I clean the showers, and I don't want to clean the showers, so all that was true, too. Uh, I love bar soap, and she won't let me use bar soap, but we were there, so she let me use bar soap. I was so excited. Um, now she's going to be like, what kind of stories are you telling about me in service? You know, we, I wouldn't go through all of that detail with you because it's, it's not important. It wasn't important to the picture. It didn't matter. And so what do I emphasize? I emphasize just the, the details that I think are the most important. And that's exactly what Mark is doing. Mark, the other gospel writers, have, have emphasized the components of Jesus' life that they see the most significance in. None of them are writing biography all of them are telling the story of Jesus to draw our attention to the most important things. And all of them together, they all do this. Mark is a good representative. They all give the majority of their time, focus, and energy to this final week of Jesus' life more than anything else. Now, we have been in this final week since Mark chapter 11. We probably forget along the way as we've been reading and studying here that, that this is the last week. You know, things have been transpiring day by day as we've been walking through this. And I thought it would be helpful just to, to remind ourselves very quickly of where we have been as we're coming into 14. So, so in chapter 11, on the first day of this week, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a colt. While the crowds and his disciples are shouting Hosanna, these messianic slogans welcoming him into the city, everyone's very excited. They go home after he looks around on the second day. He pronounces his first judgment on the temple and its system of worship. This judgment is often wrongly titled by us as Jesus doing what to the temple? Cleansing. We now know he's not cleansing anything. He is pronouncing judgment on the temple and its system of worship. Uh, he then goes home on the third day. He's pronouncing judgment on the leaders of that system. He, he directly confronts the scribes and the chief priests and the elders, and he is in turn questioned by them in an attempt to catch him in his words so that they could accuse him. And all of this has ended with a second and much, much bigger pronouncement of judgment that Jesus gives there in Mark chapter 13 as he walks out of the temple now. He spent all this time in the temple complex, and he now walks out and pronounces God's judgment on the temple, on Jerusalem, and really all of Judea, if you get right down to it, uh, by Jesus there. And, and that's the section, of course, that we just finished. But all of this was, as I said a moment ago, it's just it's kind of just prelude, because as we begin to walk through Mark 14, it's important to recognize that this is truly now truly the beginning of the end. When, when you read verse 1, you can even hear it almost in the way Mark writes it. You can hear the sense that, here we go, this is the, the beginning of the end. And, and, you know, while things may appear to be the end for Jesus, things aren't always what they appear. And what looks like the end of his life and ministry, we will see by next Sunday, are anything but. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to set the stage for us a little bit in this 
as we begin the study by noting just three points related to the setting that Mark gives us here in verses 1 and 2. If we can set this foundation, then we're in a good place next week and then going into next year to continue working through this section. In verse 1, Mark writes, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Three things. First, notice the time. Mark sets this scene as occurring two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I don't have a ton to say on this point. And as we've worked through Mark, I've tried my best to, to stop at certain comments and details just to help fill things in for you so that you have a good understanding of Jewish culture and a bigger picture, I think, than of the story. And that's kind of what I want to do this morning, just to help you understand some of the difficulty around Jewish time reckoning, which I know is everyone's favorite hobby, but just... Just stick with me for a moment, because it's, it's kind of confusing, and it leads to certain uncertainties as to the specifics of when some of these events occur. In the Jewish culture, a day ended at sundown, and a new day began at the same time. So that means, you know, for us, we, we work on the Roman system. Romans uh, saw days beginning and ending at midnight, just like we do. And so when they would wake up in the morning, it would be Sunday. And when they go to bed at night, it would still be Sunday. But, but not for the Jews. When they woke up in the morning, it would be Sunday. And then when they went to bed that night, it would be Monday. That's because their days begin and end at sundown. And this makes it difficult for us as we attempt to, to understand because we don't always know exactly when certain events are occurring because we don't always know the, the point of reference to, to start from. For example, here, Mark says it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that means it could be as early as Wednesday of that week. And he's thinking about Wednesday as a day and then Thursday as a day and then Friday will be the day of Jesus' crucifixion. Or it could be Thursday, and he's thinking of Thursday itself, and fr it, it's just very confusing. And if you've ever read anyone who has like argued about what day Jesus was crucified on, was it Thursday, was it Friday, was it this, was it that, this is why. Okay? They're not arguing about when or wh whether or not the events occurred. They're arguing about when they occurred, where in the week do you put them, and, and so it just... It just becomes very difficult, and I'll be honest with you, I, I can't really answer the question for you as to which of our days specifically Mark has in mind. I lean to it being our Wednesday, with the crucifixion being on our Friday. Okay, I'm going to use our versus there just to keep that hopefully a little bit clearer. But just so you understand the difficulty, it always comes back to the way that the Jews counted their days, and, and that was kind of difficult. Second, uh, notice the impending event. Mark says that it's the week of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, and this is significant for two reasons. First, uh, not to speak in an ironic way, because it will be kind of ironic, but this is sort of like the Christmas of the Jewish uh, people, all right? This is the big national festival that the Jews would have looked forward to all year long. And as such, Jerusalem would have been full of people at this time. Archaeologists estimate that Jerusalem probably had a population on a normal day of about 60 to 120,000 people. And I know that's a big range, but just as a rough guide of how many people live there on a normal time. During Passover, the population was probably a lot closer to 400,000. People from all over the nation flocked to Jerusalem. They wanted to be near God's holy temple uh, for Passover to observe it. And they would 
camp out in the, the hills and the villages all around the city. But, but unlike our Christmas celebrations, Passover is not just a secular or traditional holiday. The second reason this is significant is because this was the appointed time of celebration where Israel was to remember and commemorate their deliverance from Egypt. You know, you, you remember the story, right? God, through Moses, had brought nine plagues on Pharaoh and on Egypt in order to have him let the people go. But of course, after each one, he had hardened his heart and refused to let the people go. And so God now is going to send one final plague. A destroyer would come. And this destroyer would kill every firstborn child in every home. From the greatest in the land, from Pharaoh all the way down to the, to the lowest slave, every firstborn child was going to die, even those of the children of Israel. That is, unless they did something very specific. See, God commanded that each family sacrifice a lamb and brush the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their home. And this way, when, when the destroyer came and he saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over. That's the origin of the term, in case you weren't clear on that. He would pass over that house, not kill the firstborn children in the house. And the Israelites, by and large, obeyed this. I'm not saying that all of them did. But by and large, they did, and because they obeyed this, God did not send the, the destroyer, excuse me, the destroyer did not kill their firstborn children. The Egyptians, on the other hand, did not, by and large. I'm not saying there's not an exception, but, but by and large, they, they lost their firstborn. How many of you in here are firstborn children? I'm a firstborn child. So all of us would be dead if we were Egyptians. The Egyptians didn't obey. And Moses writes about the great cry that came up from the Egyptians that night. He, he describes it as a horrific scene. Can you imagine hearing the wails from people's homes as they go and see that their children, their husbands, wives, whoever, all the firstborn of Egypt are dead. And the next day, Pharaoh sends the children of Israel out. In fact, Moses writes that the people were pushing them out. Take, get whatever you need, take it, go. Get out of here, leave. We're all going to die if you stay. Israel viewed this event as being the birth of their nation. The moment when they're delivered from bondage by God's mighty hand. And immediately after this event, God commanded from that, from that point on that every year the people gather and, and celebrate and commemorate this event, this Passover, in order to remember how God had delivered them from bondage in order to make them his own. And that that's what's going on this week. This is the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They've, they've, the city is full of worshipers who have gathered to commemorate this deliverance from Egypt by God, and they will do so, each family, by sacrificing a lamb. More on that later. Third, notice the plot. Mark now makes it very clear that the chief priests and scribes see only one course of action in, in how they're going to deal with this man, Jesus. He says that they want to arrest him by stealth and kill him. I mean, they've tried everything else at this point, have they not? They, they've tried to discredit him, but they failed at that. They tried to get him to say or do something they could use against him. They failed at that. Remember back in chapter 10, when Jesus is on the other side of the Jordan and Herod's territory, they come to ask him some random question. Oh, I don't know about divorce, since maybe that worked for John the Baptist and getting him killed. And they try to get Jesus in trouble there with that. And that failed. 
over and over and over again, these religious leaders have tried to shut this man up, to get rid of him, but in each and every case, they failed. And apparently, (laughs) they've reached a point where they're done beating around the bushes. They're just done with it. They're not going to just try all these little acts of subterfuge and and this and that to try to get him in trouble with some other group. No, no, no. They're they're just going to do it now. They have fully set on arresting him and killing him. They have predetermined the the punishment, the judgment. They'll figure out the crime at some point. They just need to figure out a way to arrest him. And as you work through the events, you see they really weren't even that concerned about the crime itself because they don't even try to figure out what he did wrong until they get into the trial, right? They're like looking around. Who heard him say something? Anyone? Anyone maybe want to accuse him of some kind of crime we can kill him for? They're totally bent on killing him, and they will, they'll figure out how and why later on. This, this is the plot. However, <laughs> there's one little hiccup in all of this, and, and, and that would be the feast. That would be Passover itself. Passover is a hiccup in their plan. It's a, it's a problem for them. And this is why I think they want to arrest him by stealth. They want to do it quietly. They want to do it privately. Why? Well, Mark tells us here that they are concerned about doing it during the feast in case, lest there be an uproar from the people. And again, think of the, think of the setting. Jerusalem is, could be full of up to 400,000, maybe more. Josephus says like a million, but he might be exaggerating at that point. But, but 400,000, 500,000 faithful Jews there in the city. Uh, these Jews have been waiting for the Deliverer, their Messiah, for their entire lives. Their parents have waited for the Messiah their entire lives. Their grandparents, you get the idea. Um, the Romans are a little concerned about this as well. Romans want nothing more than just everything to stay calm and peaceful so we can, we can go on. And they're not, they're not thrilled about the idea of maybe someone coming out and saying, hey, look, I'm the Messiah and getting the people all riled up. And, and so Rome, knowing this, typically during the Passover week would station more troops in the city and in the surrounding areas just to ensure the peace. And so the Romans are on edge. And because the Romans are on edge, the people are on edge. And for all their talk against the Romans, the Pharisees in the end, the the chief priests, the scribes, these religious leaders, they are in power because of the Romans. See, as, as long as Rome is happy and Israel is calm, they get to stay in their positions. They get to hold their power and their prestige, and And they don't want anything to endanger that. And this guy, Jesus, no doubt represents the biggest danger to their power that anyone had seen in many years. He's lauded as the Messiah when he enters the city. He's pronouncing judgment left and right against them, against the temple, against the system of worship. The people are listening to him. And many are probably expecting him to do something during the feast. And the last thing the priests need now in the midst of their plot to kill him, is to somehow make it obvious that they are the ones behind his death. They want him dead. They're they're glad to see him arrested, but they've got to handle this really carefully, right? You know, you've got to think politically in this and how this is going to look, because the people could turn on him. In fact, the whole situation could explode into a riot, and then the Romans would sweep in, and who knows what would happen Folks, it is a really volatile moment 
I mean, just literally, in that particular, of all the weeks for this to occur, that, it's, a, it's a really volatile moment. And the priests recognize this, and so their plot is to do whatever it is they end up doing quietly. Quietly, secretly, so as not to upset the apple cart. Okay? This is our setting. Now, we're going to stop here for today because I, I, to develop everything else requires a lot more time. But I want to, uh, and we'll pick up from this point next Sunday. But before we go, I want to just make an assertion that I will, that I think will prove itself true, not just next Sunday, but as we continue working through the text here in the weeks ahead. It is no coincidence, in my humble opinion, it is no coincidence that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection occurs during the week of Passover. Okay, this is my assertion. This isn't just random timing, that it is divinely ordained. And remember what we saw um, a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as Paul is writing to the Corinthians and challenging them to persevere in the faith. He, he points back to the example of Israel, particularly Israel in the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And he says something to them in the midst of that that is particularly pertinent here. That those things were written for our admonition, for our teaching, for our instruction, that they are examples to us of, of truths that are yet to come. And even if, if we were not in the context of the week of Passover here in Mark, if we were just thinking about the events of Passover itself, apart from anything connected directly to, to Mark's gospel, you would clearly see that the, the Passover story is pointing us to the gospel, is it not? I mean, just think about the details. Israel's in bondage, right, in Egypt, without hope, unable to free themselves. Uh, only God could bring about this deliverance, but that would not come without cost. A lamb, many lambs, for that matter, just to be specific, many lambs were going to have to die. They'd done nothing. They're not part of the problem. They're not part of the slavery or anything else, but they have to die in order for the, their blood to cover the doorpost, for the people inside to be covered by their blood and spared from death. In advance of, of that evening, no one in Israel, no one in Egypt had any real knowledge whether or not this was even going to work. I mean, they've never seen this before. They're being told by Moses, this is what God says, and so they have to act in faith, do they not? To do this act, to, to put their trust in these words, they had to be all in because there's no plan B. If God sends the destroyer and the blood's not enough, then, then they're goners. And when the moment of God's judgment came, they're spared from his wrath because they deserve it? No. They're spared by grace through placing their faith in the revealed word of God, putting the blood on the door. And through this, of course, they end up being delivered from bondage and are made God's own people. Okay, that's, that's the Passover. Is that not a clear picture of the gospel through and through? Every last detail of it reminding us or pointing us ahead to a greater moment that, that was to come? So that to me, as I look at the series of events that are about to unfold, I, I cannot believe that it is any coincidence 
that of all of the weeks in the year that God could have chosen to have his son die on the cross, he chooses the time of this particular feast. Because what Jesus is about to do on the cross is the full and complete fulfillment of what that first Passover only pictured. We, in our bondage to sin, without hope, unable to save ourselves. Only God can bring this kind of deliverance, but not without cost. A lamb, perfect and sinless, would have to die in order to cover us with his blood. (laughs) No one knows for sure in advance if this is true. You can't You've never seen it, so you have to place your faith in what God has said, trusting that his words to us are true and that this this message of Jesus is true. And if we put all of our hope in Jesus alone, we have to be all in, no plan B. If his blood isn't enough to save us, then we're a goner. So that when the moment of God's judgment judgment comes, we'll be spared from his wrath by grace, through faith, in the blood of Jesus, and delivered from bondage in order to become God's own people, right? It's the perfect, it's the perfect connection. Think, things aren't what they appear. The people think that they've gathered just as they have every year before this. Since, since the first Passover until now, they think they've gathered simply to commemorate a Passover that occurred many, many years ago. But in reality... What they are about to witness, what we are about to witness in these next two chapters is the fulfillment of the true Passover. When the true lamb is sacrificed to truly deliver both them and us from bondage to sin and make us God's very own. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you are the true lamb that your death could do what no earthly lamb could do. We thank you that like that first Passover, your blood is sufficient to spare us from God's judgment, from God's wrath. And that if we place our faith in you, trust you, that you have promised us salvation and eternal life. Israel lived through the death of many lambs. We live through the death of one. And so Jesus, I... I come and and just as we enter this time in Mark 14, 15, 16, I ask your blessing on it. Help us to to see not just the specific events that we have come so familiar with that we almost almost don't care about them anymore. As Christians, as people who've grown up perhaps in church, we've heard about your death so much that we've grown numb to it. Please give us new eyes to see and new ears to hear a new heart to understand so that we can recognize the significance, the value that that Mark and the other gospel writers saw in this week, in this act, and that we can be amazed by it once again. Jesus, thank you for your word. It's in your name we pray.